Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 16, season 2 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Now, if you're just joining us for the very first time, over the month of May, we have been going through an incredibly boring pamphlet, and uh, that's the intention of this podcast as a whole. We're here... I'm here, should I say, to inject new life into all of the pieces of literature that I read, especially the boring ones, because I just love reading anything that I can get my hands on, and it has to be before 1927 to avoid copyright striking. So, with that being said, throughout the month of May, we have been going through the pamphlet and compendium on sanitation management entitled Dirty Dustbins and Sloppy Streets, a practical treatise on the scavenging and cleansing of cities and towns by a man who needs no introduction, but uh, I'm going to give you one anyway. He has written as a staunch socialist, and yet we have found is slave to the pocketbooks of the British elite, he has developed a system for the landfill that we know today and has formed a large portion of America. And we are home to the largest landfill in the world, in Las Vegas, Nevada. Go figure. And uh, dare I say it, he is the modern godfather of Oscar the Grouch. Give it up for Henry Percy Bonnois. I mean, what a titan of sanitation management, am I right? I I was on a jog this morning, which I don't normally do, so it was a rather strange experience in general. But I concluded my time gasping for oxygen that was not present in my lungs, and as kismet would have it, I stopped in front of a dumpster. And on any other day, I would have not even thought about this thing. But just because of the incredible impact and influence this pamphlet has had on my life, I mean, I was just going through an emotional turmoil at that moment. Um, maybe it was due to oxygen deprivation, but I do believe I shed a tear in that moment for this such a tiny metal receptacle pro has provided such an amazing contribution to society around the globe and uh yeah i was just overcome in that moment so i would say indeed despite this being what some would say as boring i would say has been groundbreaking for people all over the world. And uh, we are going to be sadly concluding our time in this pamphlet with a rather ominous chapter where all of my Midwestern friends can shout out a hearty amen for it is entitled Snow. Let us begin. The unthinking ratepayer 
frequently exclaims, Why cannot the authorities order this abominable snow to be immediately carted away? When the footpath and roadway in front of his domicile lie hidden under a thick coating of snow crystals. Signor E. Bignami Shormani, assisted by Professor Clarichetti, have made m several most interesting investigations and observations upon the density of fresh fallen snow in Milan by means of a simple balance and compressing box. The range of weight of the snow was found to vary as much as 11 times the minimum. A cubic yard from one snowstorm weighing as much as 814 pounds, while an equal bulk from another fall only weighed 71 pounds. The weight, consequently, of a cubic foot of the densest snow is 30.14 pounds, whilst a cubic foot of water weighs 62.5 pounds, or only about double the weight of this dense snow, but which was, in all probability, little different from ice. For my purposes, however, I will take a mean between these extreme weights and assume that the weight of the cubic foot of snow is 16.38 pounds and that a fall of three inches of snow during the night has caused the ejaculation which I commenced this chapter to proceed from the aforesaid rate pair. The ordinary width of an English street may be taken at 36 feet, including the footpaths, so that on every 100 yards in length of every street of that width, 2,700 cubic feet of snow have fallen, the total weight of which amounts to 44,226 pounds, or very nearly 20 tons, which in actual bulk would represent a hundred cubic yards. But as the snow would soon become compressed after falling, I assume this bulk would be diminished by one half, and that consequently, without reckoning the snow which has fallen upon roofs and into courts, passages and alleys, and which has been quickly shoveled therefrom to the street by the occupiers, about forty ordinary cartloads, weighing half a ton each, would have to be removed from this length of street. Assuming that there are 30 miles of street in a town from which the snow must be immediately removed, 21,144 loads must be carted somewhere at a cost of at least 1,500 pounds, assuming that each cart could make 10 trips a day, and even then it would take 352 carts a whole week to affect it. It may be contended that I have taken an extreme case, and that, of course, the snow does not lie for very long upon the ground in the condition in which it fell, and that hourly it is reducing in bulk and weight by being ground up by the traffic and finding its way in the form of water into the sewers. But I have simply advanced the few facts which I have stated in order to give some idea of the labor and cost of snow clearing in a city or town, and I think I cannot do better than at once describe how this important work is carried out in the city of Milan.
where the organization and arrangements by which it is accomplished with marvelous dispatch and efficiency could with advantage be copied by the authorities of any of our towns which are occasionally visited by excessive falls of snow. In Milan, the snow carts are emptied into the navigable canals and numerous watercourses by which the city is intersected, and laterally also into the new sewers in the central portion of the city, which are promptly flushed whenever it snows. During the winter of 1879-80, to 80, the cost of clearing the 1,656,200 square yards total area of squares, streets, and lanes within the city walls averaged 200 pounds per inch depth of snow fallen, and for the 502,800 square yards outside the walls, the average cost was 62 pounds per inch depth, equivalent in each case to about 1.05 pence per cubic yard. Ordinarily, the clearing of the more frequented streets is completed within 8 or 10 hours after it has stopped snowing, and of the rest within 24 hours, not reckoning night. The city is parceled out into small districts, numbering 112 for last winter, of varying extent according to the importance of the work in each. An average rate of pay per inch depth of snow fallen is settled for the whole area of each separate district according to its extent and the particular conditions affecting the several streets and squares comprised within it. Each district is allotted to a contractor who usually associates with himself six to ten partners besides the laborers whom he employs. He has to find carts, horses, and carters. The necessary implements, spades, shovels, brooms, scrapers, mattocks, barrows, etc., are furnished by the city under suitable stipulations for ensuring proper care in their use. The contracts are made annually, and the same persons almost always apply for them again year after year. The contractors come principally from the trades that are interrupted by winter, namely paviors, bricklayers, and masons, and gravel quarrymen. For the direction and supervision of the work, the whole city is divided into four sections, over each of which is appointed an engineer with an assistant who are aided in the general arrangements made by the police surveillance. Payment is made only for work effectually done. In each snowstorm, the depth of snow falling, which is the basis of pay, is ascertained by means of a number of stone posts fixed in suitable open spaces, clear of shelter from buildings, and each capped with a flat horizontal slab of stone. As soon as it stops snowing, or two or three times during a storm of several hours, the depth of snow caught on the slabs is measured by the ingenieur in the presence of two of the contractors in his section. The number of men ordinarily engaged in snow clearing on winter's day is not less than 2,000, and has sometimes risen to 3,000. 
the stock of implements found by the city, representing a capital of about 1,600 pounds, is housed in two stores in opposite quarters of the city. In the winter of 1874-75, the total fall of snow amounted to 40 and three-quarter inches, and the whole expenditure for clearing it within the city walls exceeded 8,400 pounds, while in 1877-78, the fall was only five and a quarter inches, involving an expenditure of less than 1,040 pounds for a slightly larger area. The small cost at which this work is carried out in Milan is accounted for by the low rate of wages and cart hire, and the perfect organization of the system. When a fall of snow occurs in Paris, attention is first directed to clearing the footpaths and crossings, so as to ensure uninterrupted foot passenger traffic. The town scavengers sand the roads whenever it is necessary for the carriage traffic. At the same time, numerous auxiliaries are organized to remove the snow from the principal thoroughfares in the order of their relative importance. To assist in removing the snow, the General Omnibus Company are bound by their concession to furnish 50 wagons, and carts are specially arranged for with the providers of sand and gravel at the beginning of the winter. The contractors for maintaining the public roads being also bound to hold their carts at the disposition of the sectional engineers. In certain cases, the half-melted snow is swept into the sewers, especially into those carrying warm water. Melting by steam has been tried when a continuous jet was turned onto a mass of banked snow, but it melted very slowly at first and the melting ceased after the cavity had increased to a certain size. Two descriptions of snow plows are kept in store, one for manual, the other for horsepower, but they have never been used, as the coating of snow seldom attains sufficient thickness, and it is too quickly compressed and hardened by the traffic. As a rule, the sum allowed in the budget, about 7,000 pounds, suffices for the extra labor incurred, but occasionally severe winters cause this to be greatly exceeded, as in 1875-76, when the increase amounted to 8,000 pounds, and no doubt in the winter that had just passed, 1880-81, the estimate must also have been largely exceeded. In England, one of the greatest difficulties we have to contend against is the disposal of snow after it has been placed in the cart. If there is a river close by, it can be taken there and tipped, but this is objectionable if it is navigable river where dredging has to be done, as it is surprising what quantity of road scrapings and other matters are always removed with the snow, and these materials naturally sink to the bottom and add considerably to the cost of dredging. If there are public parks, the snow may be heaped in them, provided no damage is done to the grass or paths, as the snow thus heaped takes a considerable time to melt, the first effect of a thaw being to consolidate it. But a better plan is to deposit it upon any waste spots if they are not too far from the streets which have to be cleared. Tipping the snow down the manholes into the sewers 
has been tried in London and other cities, but it has failed through the snow consolidating. And although lighted gas jets have been turned on to the snow, it has still melted too slowly to be of any practical utility. It has been suggested that a steam jet should be turned on the snow as it lies in the streets, or after it has been heaped. But I very much doubt the efficacy of this plan, although Mistress Merriweather and Company of London have, I understand, melted a cartload of snow in seven minutes. It might, however, be possible to melt the snow by the heat generated in the furnaces that are destroying the house refuse by fire, and this could be affected without any large expense beyond the cost of cartage of the snow to the depots, which would of course be necessary. Failing in organizations such as that of Milan, the following suggestions may be of use to those who have sometimes to grapple with this unproductive work. Do not attempt to cart away the snow while it is yet falling, but try to make clear crossings for the foot passengers and to keep the traffic open. If there should be a high wind at the time, and the snow drifts in consequence, cut through the drifts so as to allow the vehicular traffic to continue. Hmm. Directly the snow ceases to fall put on all available hands to clear the channel gutters and street gratings. In preparation for a sudden thaw, when, if these precautions were not taken, serious flooding and great damage to property might ensue. For the same reason, Cart away all the snow you can at the bottom of the gradients and in the valleys, and also from every narrow streets and passages, etc. In the wider streets, use the snow plow, or with gangs of men. In the snow season, there is generally plenty of labor obtainable. Shovel the snow into a long, narrow heap on each side of the street, taking care to leave the channel gutters and gratings quite clear and a sufficient space between the heaps for at least two lines of traffic. Passages must also be cut at frequent intervals through the heaps in order to allow foot passengers to cross the street and also to let the water reach the channel gutters as soon as the snow begins to melt. <clears throat> With regard to the question of clearing the snow from the footpaths irrespective of the larger duty of clearing it from the streets, it is often a disputed point in a town as to whether this should be done by the urban authority at the expense of the rates or by the householders themselves. And this can only be settled where the town has a private improvement act in which a clause or clauses may be inserted, throwing the onus of such cleansing and sweeping of the footpaths upon the several and respective occupiers of houses and buildings. But on whoever the duty rests, there is no doubt that the easiest and quickest method of effecting a thorough cleansing of a footpath from snow is by an application of salt and then to sweep off the slush that is engendered with a broom. Medical men and others, however, assert that the practice of putting salt with the snow is to make a freezing mixture, which is detrimental to the health of persons walking on such a mixture. And there can be no doubt that excessive cold is caused by this practice, often sufficiently severe to crack the flagstones of the foot pavement. In the city of London, the footways are swept once daily by men in the employment 
of the commissioners of sewers, and in wet weather, those in the main streets are cleansed repeatedly during the day. And this has been done, I believe, since the year 1872, although the occupiers are legally liable for the execution of this work. In Liverpool also, this is done after a fall of snow, as will appear from the following interesting remarks on the subject, contained in a report by the superintendent of the scavenging department in that borough. <clears throat> the only way to compass the removal of snow from the footwalks of the principal thoroughfares within a comparatively short time is by sprinkling them with salt, such as commonly used for agricultural purposes. It is certain that, unaided by the salt, a sufficient number of men cannot be procured for the emergency of clearing snow from the footways of the most important thoroughfares. It has been stated by medical authorities that the application of salt to snow is detrimental to the health of people who have to walk through the slush produced by the mixture, and that the excessive cooling of the air surrounding the places where the application has been made is injurious to delicate persons. It therefore seems that the application of salt to snow should not be undertaken during the daytime, but should be commenced not before 11 p.m., nor continued after 6 a.m., and that only such an area of footwalks should be so treated on any one night as the available staff of men can clear by an early hour the following morning. To sweep snow from the footwalks whilst the fall of snow continues, and especially during business hours, appears to be wasteful and futile, and to apply salt during the same periods may be held to be injurious to health. That the snow of an ordinary fall can be removed from the footwalks by an application of salt an hour or so before they are scraped is an ascertained fact, except at least when a moderately severe frost has preceded, accompanied or followed the snowfall, or when the snow has drifted into extensive accumulations. Were it not for the danger to health by the excessive cooling of the air, and for the expense attending the operation, all the impervious pavements could be cleared of snow, unless the fall was a heavy one, in a comparatively short time by a liberal application of salt and the employment of the horse-sweeping machines, as soon as the snow had become sufficiently softened to admit of their use. To these remarks, I have nothing to add, except to suggest that in addition to clearing the snow from the footpaths, care should also be taken to scrape out and thoroughly clear the roof water trunks, which are frequently found crossing the foot pavements. If these remain choked, Damage may ensue to the adjoining property when a thaw commences. End of chapter 8. I'm a strong believer that this chapter speaks to the soul of every Midwesterner that has ever existed. For them growing up in snowy regions, snow just evokes really strong impressions of memories that were pleasant to the thought. Like... When I was in Wisconsin 2009, I remember built, trying to build a snow fort in a blizzard and my face getting like destroyed by the snow and ice. Um, then having to dig my parents out of their house because the snow 
we got like 20 some odd inches of snow in the course of a night which was crazy um and then of course in indiana you can't get by even into the winter months sometimes they even mention it in the summer just for fun to remember the blizzard of 1978 where snow drifts were up to 10 feet high and you could touch utility poles and such so i mean anywhere you go you're gonna find you know wonderful snow stories and i mean i think henry really outdid himself because this is a very practical treatise right that's in the title of the pamphlet and indeed when he poses the hypothetical question to himself regarding a how he describes them as an unthinking ratepayer slash taxpayer uh they ask the question as if like snow is such an inconvenience you know they're like why cannot the authorities order this abominable snow to be immediately carted away and so he uses that as his jumping off point to describe his process for snow removal and he looks to the examples of Italy and France, which I would have picked Russia if I was him being in Europe, but hey, I'm not him. And he goes into costs and measurements and weights and time commitments and human resources required. And he's just like, that's why. Because based off of like everything that we have, it's just not like feasible to get rid of the snow in a very you know efficient manner so here's what these countries do but it can be costly be obviously depending on the variable amounts of snow that are received each year so we're gonna have to kind of play it by ear but here's some solutions that were presented you redistribute the snow obviously like ie like snow plowing like shovel off like popular walkways and roads first and try to just focus on getting those cleaned up and then just let the rest just melt okay and you know they do stuff like they're dumping it into sewers but it's just not melting fast enough um that he mentions like a steam jet gun you know trying to melt the snow but it's only partially effective and then some uh wagon company called mayweather and company in london I think they invented the flamethrower based upon what they just described, but they were able to successfully melt snow within a matter of seven minutes, which I think is pretty impressive. So I'd just say just use a flamethrower if I was them. But um, obviously they got to use other types of means. So that I think they use table salt. I think that's what they mean when they say put salt down because they didn't have ice melt back then. I'm pretty confident about that. And... So that was probably a viable solution to help mitigate like slippery roads and footpaths. I was like, okay, these are very practical measures. But I mean, come on, let's look for unpractical measures. And so I found a, a blog from 2009, okay? Really gold stuff, okay? And they had a website. It was called recyclethis.co.uk, and its entire purpose was to answer the question, how can I recycle this with various items and, you know, objects and things? And in this case, obviously, it's snow. 
This blogger clearly had no idea what they were talking about and just put down some random stuff like, oh, you can pre-freeze items, you know, before you put it in the freezer or just stick it in a rain barrel and let it melt and then you can use it for water. Okay, like, okay, Sherlock, like, <laughs> thanks. So I was like, maybe the comment section is more helpful. And it wasn't more helpful, but it's a lot more entertaining than the 2022 comment section. Because we have people like Bobby who said, we used to make snow ice cream when I was a kid. We added sugar, milk, and beaten eggs. But that was in the 1950s. And really, we shouldn't have eaten it at all as we lived in New Mexico during the H-bomb testing. Gosh, it was good, though. <laughs> so then you got Bobby. Um, Ashley provides a, a crack recipe for... Uh, what does she call it? Um snow cones she provides a crack recipe for snow cones and you're like thank you ashley and then you got smart alec boots okay some obscure like username and he's like he provides this like oh just use a recycled box and put snow in it so that homeless people can use it to make igloos and snow cones you know and you're just like okay thanks boots get out of here and then you've got, you know, completely blissful Cipollina, don't even know, I, I don't even know, just says, send all the snow to me, smiley face emoticon. And you're just like, thanks, Cipollina. That was a really helpful comment. Um, so I love blogs from 2009. Send me more if you have them. But I was thinking to myself, what about eating snow? I think that's a very viable solution because I was also looking at articles about, okay, how does Boston get rid of snow? And they were like, obviously, you know, just let it melt. You know, you move it and redistribute it to different areas, you know, empty lots and those sorts of things. But I did read that if the snow gets too bad because their average snowfall per year is 52 inches of snow, which is quite significant. But if it gets too much, they'll actually just order their snow plows to plow directly into the Atlantic Ocean. And you have to have a special state order for it because go figure, it's not environmentally friendly to push not only snow, but also chemically induced ice melt, uh, vehicle fluids, and you know debris from the streets all into the Boston Harbor. We're not just chucking tea in there any longer. So that was, you know, that's, I guess, a viable solution. Then you got, like, places like St. Paul where they're like, oh, we just, you know, have, like, a massive, like, lot that we just all dump all of our stuff. We used to call it Mount Midway. It didn't melt until May. And I was like, dang. And so you're just like, okay, cool. Um, but I was just like, come on. Like, have fun with the snow, right? Um, don't ask me why, but I was like, okay, cool recipes. And Fox News article showed up. And it's not even like a recent Fox News article. This is from 2017. Okay, it made top results on Google. So they, they really hit some points here. Because um, I would definitely not use them for news sources on good food recipes. But they do have some. Maple syrup snow taffy, okay? Um, snow pancakes, which 
I don't even know how you would like figure that out. Um, they put a person's name, Catherine Grossman, and then they said, AKA Granny Miller, because as we all know, putting granny in front of a food recipe automatically makes it delicious. So the mythical Miller granny, um, is making snow pancakes for some reason. Uh, we need to we need to check in on her at a later point in time. Um, and then they've got some alcohol induced like snow recipes, and you're just like, okay, whatever. Um, so that would be my personal thing. But then I was just like, wait, isn't snow toxic? Like, isn't it just like snow crystals like wrapped in dirt? Indeed, it is. But fortunately, all the medical um, articles that I were reading from like reputable sources, you know, like the Mayo Clinic and such, they were like, yeah, you can eat snow. It's not going to kill you as long as you eat it in moderation. <laughs> and they're just like, you know, obviously don't make it a meal. Um, but if you eat snow, you know, from it falling or, you know, you eat part of a snowball, it's not going to do much to you. I mean, as long as you're not eating yellow snow, obviously, or, you know, clearly snow from animal droppings, then you should probably reconsider your life choices. And so I was like, wow, you know, these are some really helpful ways to, you know, get rid of snow. So, like, I think this was overall very effective um, for Henry Percy Bonnois. But as we conclude, a few things that I wanted to note. I just realized today that this pamphlet was written in May of 1888. So, indeed, we have read this 124 years in the future, and we are reaping the benefits of the sanitation principles and practices of Mr. Bonnois. And, uh, you know, I can't reiterate enough, brilliant man. And he epitomizes the idiom, one man's trash is another man's treasure, excellently for this pun that I was waiting so long to use. And um, I think he should deserve more recognition for what he has done for our world in, in general. So remember the name Henry Percy Bonnois, folks please do now obviously today's the end of may so we're going to be reading for next month another amazingly interesting boring book which i have yet to reveal to you so you will see on the title in june um i have a few thoughts that i've been tossing around and haven't quite settled yet on where I want to go. But I think we just need to conclude at this point um, because it's almost June and we're talking about snow. So uh, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I'm your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. And as they say in showbiz, that's all he wrote. No, seriously. Seriously.